Brittany Packett said, an ally shows up when it is convenient, an accomplice shows up when there is a risk. I am Tamara Ross, and this is Ally to Accomplice. Take a risk and join me on a learning journey where we will hear from smart and generous individuals who will help guide us to use our power and privilege to challenge the status quo and create equitably inclusive spaces for all. Once you have seen injustice, you can't unsee it. We are obliged to act. This podcast is being recorded in the Treaty 7 region, the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda Nation, the Tsutina Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. I am grateful as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play here, and strive to live in right relations to all those human and non-human who call this place home. Apologies for the delay between podcast episodes, but it turns out I needed to take the summer off to start a new job, move from our home of 15 years to start new adventures back where I began my life and my career. It is something at 51 to be starting over anew, but I have friends and family and good new colleagues where I've landed, and always my trusty partner to experience these new things together. The next four podcasts will be interviews I did back in early July with two amazing humans. There was so much content that I've split each interview into two podcast episodes. I hope you enjoy hearing from these incredibly smart, no-nonsense folks. Lisa Funderberg Hoffman is Executive Director of the Artists' Communities Alliance. Lisa is a systems thinker and coalition builder whose work examines equitable engagement. A dynamic facilitator, she works with residencies, foundations, and other nonprofits in effective strategy and improving the efficacy of teams and programs. A scientist by training, she has served as a herbarium collections manager, public school educator, and has held leadership posts at McCall Center for Art and Innovation and Charlotte Nietzsche Museum, among others. She is currently on the Grant Makers in the Arts Individual Artist Committee and serves on the board of the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the National Assembly of State Arts Agencies, and the Performing Arts Alliance. She was instrumental and critical for many artists and arts administrators in helping to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic and Black Lives Matter, always serving with honesty and care. Lisa, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Before I get to your work and the work of the Alliance, I, I do want to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on Canada Day and just a few days before the 4th of July. And I know up here in Canada, questions around the appropriateness of celebrating when there continues to be unmarked graves of now over a thousand Indigenous children who died at residential schools that are being found. Similarly, where you are in the States, Black and Indigenous Americans continue to be racialized and killed with little admittance in both places to the systemic racism that does exist. The truth needs to be known and acknowledged before we can reconcile and, and in turn decolonize. I just wanted to start with that and and if you have any thoughts. I, I think I always have thoughts and on any day of celebration, whether it's a national holiday or even a personal one, what are we really celebrating? I've been struggling in the past few weeks just personally thinking about the recognition of Juneteenth here in the U.S., yeah. um, which, as we talk about Canada Day, July 4th, we'd be remiss not to mention that it was just made a national holiday in the U.S. And the real discomfort that I feel around the day off 
and the conflict that has with an individual, a Black woman has persevered and spent most of her life trying to advocate for this to be a federal holiday, but really trying to figure out, do people really understand what it signifies, what it means, the why, as we talk about truth, as we talk about healing, as we talk about repair, what is the opportunity to look at these recognized holidays to start to really do some of that work versus giving the masses of people who traditionally get the days off Mm -hmm. more days off. Mm -hmm. So what is an acknowledgement of of history and an acknowledgement of wrongdoing without some real sincere action that starts to heal and repair it. And and I'm really in deep conflict over that because unfortunately the majority of the black people that are impacted as descendants of enslaved peoples don't get to celebrate in the same way as the people who have taken advantage of the holiday. And the people who have the holiday have not expressed a real intention around understanding it or using it as a moment, not for their individual rest, but as an opportunity to repair. It is something that has been on my mind with really no conclusion, no answer, but acknowledging the tension and the conflict behind the things that we celebrate. As a person who just celebrates, I woke up this morning, my boys woke up this morning, my daughter woke up this morning, my parents woke up this morning, They were not stopped by police last night. They have been able to experience some joy in spite of it all. And so those are my celebrations uh, right now. They feel very big and extraordinarily important. Thanks for that. Let's move to talk about the Artists Communities Alliance and the work you do there. Just tell us briefly about the organization and and what your team has been focusing on since your arrival, and especially over the past year, having gone through a lot of stuff with COVID, but also a new strategic plan. I am the executive director of the Artist Communities Alliance. Hold that title and embrace it in in such an open and beautiful way of, of a field that I love, a practice that I love in terms of the way that the residency field supports individual artists' time and space to advance their creative work. The Alliance is actually the International Service Organization for Artist Residency Programs. And for those that know us, we'll know that we have members in all 50 states and over 23 countries, about 400 members in total. And, And our work is really centered around supporting those artist residencies, their administrators, um, and the artists that they serve in meaningful ways through learning, connection, exchange, research, and advocacy. It's really amazing work because our, our focus is around the residency field itself and artist residencies, but the implication of that is really how we support individual artists and society. I came to this work personally. I worked for an artist residency program in Charlotte, North Carolina for just over three years and served on the Alliance board for a very short period and was welcomed into this space in in 2016 to be the executive director. And upon acceptance of this role and really thinking about 
how to shape a new way forward and what could the potential be for artist communities and the field writ large, I knew that there was a serious deficit in terms of equity and creating fair and just environments, not only for artists, but those folks that work at artist residency programs and really have been on this progressive track of slowly, but with some really deep intention about bringing that forward and how we can partner with the field and the people who power that field to improve the climate and the conditions of artist residency programs so that any artist can participate and thrive and enjoy and live to their best self while attending the artist residency program. And while that feels pretty easy to say or state, there's actually a big disconnect in between what we actually see in practice and what actually happens uh, on a residency campus. And that's not to diminish all the great work that artist residencies do, but our work is to focus on that gap uh, of where it needs to be strengthened and bolstered. And that's what we've been doing for the past five years or so. At the onset of the pandemic, we were probably about 30% into a strategic planning process that felt like one of those things that we were going to get to it, right? Like we we're gonna get to it, we we're gonna find it. And it was gonna be the typical slog of an ED. I'm like, I'm in a strategic planning process and I gotta do this thing and the board and I do this and we're gonna wrestle with some things. But what became really interesting and readily apparent at the start of the pandemic was that our jotted down notes, our rough thinking, pie in the sky dreaming was something that had to be actuated and affected rather quickly. And we had to live to the aspiration of, of the organization that we wanted to be. It, it was tough, but it was also extraordinarily rewarding because while you're going through a significant change and the experiencing of uh, continued racial injustice, and the backdrop of a pandemic and an ongoing environmental crisis to come forward and start to think very boldly and, and big about how we could be in service to the artist residency field. How could we better support individual artists and how could we do that in the most fair and just manner possible, but have it underscored with what I keep saying, joy. We should be able to, to love what we do and love it while we're doing it, even if the work is hard, even if it's tough, even if it's challenging, there should be some joy in that. And, and so we just spent the last year uh, working on that. And so taking some really good ideas and evolving them into some really strong actions in a way to connect this community, to uplift those voices that have been typically not recognized in the field because, you know, we tend to say underrepresented, but I think the real thing is that have been typically not recognized, that have been overlooked over such a period of time that they're not even considered in the scope of, of doing the work. How could we do that and stay centered on that to live our values and mission as an organization because the time seemed now, it was no better time to do it. So we wrote a strategic plan, rewrote the mission and changed. We took the turn and thought about it, like how can we do our best work and how can we do it collectively and how can we bring more people into it? And it's been really, in spite of it all, 
the, the practice of doing it has been really rewarding. The cause has been really draining and continues. That's the duality of that. The gift of time and space for artists is really what we hear most about when we talk about artist residencies and why they matter. But we often don't discuss safety. And some residencies are safer than others. Can you discuss some of the safety obstacles you help address with organizations that come from artists, from differently abled or artists of color? I'm trying to move away from this idea, paternalistic views. Why do we say the gift of time Mm. and space, right? Mm. It kind of takes away the reciprocity of what's happening here. What's happening at a residency is actually really if it's done well, it's a, it's an exchange, right? Mm-hmm. Residency is receiving something in turn. The artist is receiving something and they're working together in a relationship with each other. But when we say gift, it feels like I gave you something. Now yeah. you, owe you owe me something back. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm trying to like stop using that myself because it's, it's what we have used as yeah. a definition. And, and we say it so secondhand, but to really be careful with that because that's the first step to decolonizing that space to recognize that it's a relationship it's an invitation into a relationship and there's some reciprocity with that relationship there are benefits to the artist there is also actually benefits to the residency program and and both need to be in conversation about what that is what that means and and what are the impacts of that we're constantly thinking about how do we do better and and this goes right to your point about safety because we know safety is relative to the person who is experiencing it. My conditions of safety or when I feel safe in the moment may be very different from when you feel safe in the moment. And what we have realized over the past five years is that Fields has done an excellent job at providing the basic needs mm-hmm. that one needs in order to kind of come, rest, eat, commune. However, some of these signals and things that happen, whether on the campus or in our communities are often disregarded, that may make a particular person feel unsafe, primarily because of their racial identity, sexual or gender identity, or their ability, and and that those unsafe conditions uh, are not new. It's not something that just is in the past two or three years. I talked to my partner a lot about it. And she said she was somewhere and one of her friends said, check your receipts. It's written in our evaluations and so <laughs> forth. But because we have a predominantly white field, we're predominantly white administrators, predominantly white boards, and often situated in predominantly white context, even if that context may be in a community of color or urban, it skews heavily white. Mm. So if if it's skewing white, the majority is feeling the safety of their conveyed, what what is given to them at birth, which is, I am white, I'm in a different position, so therefore I'm able to navigate the space in such a way. So when a, a person of color, a transgender person, a person with different abilities, experiencing saying, this is unsafe for me, it's either a surprise, a shock, or sometimes often diminished and, mm-hmm. and overlooked and, and devalued because that's not part of the experience. And, and we're seeing this. We're, we're seeing this from 
aggressive behaviors from the community where people are directly confronting artists of color, trans artists. We are seeing this within the context of residencies and cohorts and communities where you may think you have curated the most excellent group of people together and you find that there are members within that cohort that are aggressive and violent racially and indifferent to other folks' needs. We are seeing within the context of leadership that whether it be the board or the staff, that the holding on to past policy process and practice, even if it's violent and causes harm to people of color or, or a person with a disability or a trans individual, they continue to uphold those policies and practices and look away because it's not part of their daily experience. And there are reports of policing artists. There are reports of artists being name called, called out in public forums with racial slurs and derogatory language. There's constant reports of bullying, sexual harassment, unwanted advances. There are consistent reports of alienation lack of access. One of the most heartbreaking reports I heard once is a member program had an artist who had a personal care attendant and also had to use a wheelchair. And throughout the residency, there were certain accommodations made. But on the last night of the celebration party, the cohort planned a party that was on the second or third story. And he was outside on the gravel lot. And, you know, this just total disregard for the conditions or the environment being welcoming and comfortable and safe for everyone. So when we talk about safety, I think it shows up in a number of different ways down to the physical safety of many people, but also the emotional and psychological safety mm-hmm. is at risk in most of the cases, especially when you're dealing with those folks that have not been chosen in mass to participate in these programs over the year and have been historically excluded from participating. And, and we're getting those reports regularly too often to mention, actually. And do you think that you probably hear more of it than the actual residencies themselves because people feel that you're a safe place to come and and speak about this or get help or let their experience out so that it maybe doesn't happen again? I I think me as a Black woman, I'm definitely called upon in terms of uh, affinity and relationship to say, like, Lisa, can can I talk to you about this for a minute? And needing someone to listen, to notice and recognize the pain and the experience that they went through, not necessarily to adjudicate or or solve, but to to notice that this has actually happened. And, And I'm called upon a lot. And I think the second tier of that is that I'm called upon by white people. and and I'll say it very plainly, to comfort them. We have to address this myth of white fragility that I need you to soothe me. Tell me I am a good white person. I, I call myself an ally. Tell me that what I'm doing was not wrong or the conditions that I created or the evaluations I ignored or the complaint that I didn't act on or my fact that my staff was inaccessible. Tell me that we are okay, that we work hard and that we're doing work, validate our actions. So yes, I'm called upon on a lot because people need comfort and soothing in different ways and they need a friend. But what I'm seeing mostly, especially from the white community is people are looking for ways for me to soothe them and genuflect to their comfort so that they can continue to 
longer exist without actually addressing the problem or sitting with that discomfort. And I find that deeply problematic. Do you feel that you have the ability to say, I'm here to tell you that you know what you did was wrong. Oh, yeah. Here's yeah. how you fix it. You know? <laughs> Here's what yeah. you need to do about it, you know? So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm naturally, I think, that person. I always try to hold some level of diplomacy and I hope that I do it. But there's often times when you can't be diplomatic. I am a truth teller. I try to be very clear. And for people that are really interested in doing the deep work. I try to partner them with folks that that can help them move forward. It's not my work to do. It takes a great emotional fatigue. It takes a great emotional toll uh, on me. Sometimes that manifests in physical ways. However, I love a lot of people and a lot of people I love aren't all Black, Indigenous, or people of color. And I want to live harmoniously in this world and on this earth with people and some of my service work and the motivation behind this is my own children who are interested in the arts and this particular work is how can I make it better? What is my part and what's my role in doing it? So uh, it comes at a cost. It can sometimes be violent and, and every interaction with it is always like even us talking today, there is an emotional talk, toll to it. There's a cost to it. Mm-hmm. But I, I've just learned to put up some barriers and really listen to myself when I need to, but also think about, well, if I'm not the one, I've got this great team that is extraordinarily diverse, that is really beautiful, that is doing the hard and the deep work every day to strengthen their capacity to be anti-racist. How can I engage them in this process? Mm-hmm. So the other side of this is, is working with the team on these values and creating an environment where we can be whole, where we can be one, we can challenge, where we can dialogue so that I'm not the only one carrying it. And then that way we can start to begin to model what it can be. At the top of this episode, Lisa and I were discussing days of celebration and what we are celebrating And are we really taking the time to reconcile and learn about why these holidays are here? In June, the Canadian government passed into legislation a federal statutory holiday, September 30th, as a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I urge you to take this day to learn more about truth and reconciliation and why it is needed in our country. Use the day to determine what you can do to learn the truth and then move to reconciliation in your world and go further to learn what decolonization might mean and how you might be able to be a part of it. Don't just take the day off. Work harder than you ever have this September 30th. Merci Marc Maziad pour la musique. Thank you Don Saunders-Dahl for the podcast artwork. Thank you for joining me today. In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge as a white settler with privilege that I live, work, and play on both the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Suxika, Kainai, Pekani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda, Bearspaw, Chiniki, Wesley Nations, the Metis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their home in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta as well as the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Stolo, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Continue this important learning journey with me in future Ally to Accomplice podcasts.